continue our series this morning on the master's morality. And I want to speak to you on the subject of contending with temptation. And what I want to try to do today is to really bring you face to face with what I believe is the most serious challenge that any of us face as believers. And I think the reason for that is simply that I think especially over the last few years, uh, we have kind of gotten this view in Christianity that Satan is very, very powerful, and that is true. But for the most part, attacks come on us directly by Satan. I think probably uh, a book that really lends credence to that particular view is the book that Peretti wrote called This Present Darkness. And I think because of that book, primarily, there's been a lot of discussion concerning Satan and his power. And the result has been that Satan is literally personally blamed for everything. I remember when Jimmy Swaggart had his fall from grace, the way that he got restored was to call Oral Roberts on the phone. And Oral Roberts then exorcised the demonic influences on Jimmy Swaggart's life over the phone. And therefore, Jimmy Swaggart was returned to ministry. There's no question, young people, that Satan is a powerful being. Next to God, he is the most powerful being in the universe. But what you need to understand this morning is that Satan is not God. He is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. And he is not omniscient. But he does, however, exercise great power along with his demons over this present world. But I believe temptation, for the most part, is much more subtle and not as easy to recognize because basically it is transmitted through our culture. I think if any group in our culture kind of epitomizes the pressure of temptation that we are under today, it is that group which would be in the age group between 30 and 50 years of age. It is the largest group in our culture. They are called the baby boomers. And this group is so large that their tastes basically dominate our entire culture. Now, the direct product of this culture really are the 18 to 29 year olds. That is this particular group that is sitting before me this morning. Let me read you what Time Magazine says about you as it relates to this bigger group as of July 16, 1990. They have trouble making decisions. They would rather hike in the Himalayas than climb a corporate ladder. They have few heroes, no anthems, no style to call their own. They crave entertainment, but their attention span is so short as one zap of a TV dial. They hate yuppies, hippies, and druggies. They postpone marriage because they dread divorce. They sneer at Range Rovers, Rolexes, and red suspenders. What they hold dear are family life, local activism, national parks, penny loafers, and mountain bikes. They possess only a hazy sense of their own identity, but a monumental preoccupation with all the problems the preceding generation will leave them to fix. This is the 20-something generation. Those 48 million young Americans aged 18 through 29 
who fall between the famous baby boomers and the boomlet children the baby boomers are producing. This crowd is profoundly different from and even contrary to the group that came of age in the 60s that celebrates itself each week on the wonder years and 30-something. By and large, the 18 to 29-year-old group scornfully rejects the habits and values of the baby boomers, viewing that group as a self-centered and fickle and impractical generation. The 20-somethings feel paralyzed by the social problems they see as their inheritance, racial strife, homelessness, AIDS, fractured families, and federal deficits. Now, back to the boomer group. Time magazine goes on. The boomer group, that is the 30 to 50-year-olds, is so huge that it tends to define every era it passes through, forcing society to accommodate its moods and its dimensions. Where does temptation come from as it relates to culture? Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, and I believe Dave Maddox touched on this with the men in the divided chapel on Monday. This is the clearest teaching in the Word of God concerning temptation. And what you need to understand as you read this particular text is that in this text there is not one word about Satan and his demonic forces. Listen as I read. Let no man say when he is tempted... I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away, now watch this next phrase, of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and when sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. James tells this very clearly that we are tempted by our own evil desires and then enticed by these desires. And when these desires are allowed to develop in our lives, they dominate us and thus give birth to sin. Now, the point of this text is simply this, folks, for this morning. This is not a head-on assault by Satan. It is not direct. And the greatest challenge for the Christian today is to withstand the temptation of our fallen humanity to buy into the culture around us. You see, Satan uses what is already present within our fallen humanity and within the culture. Let me illustrate it. I like really good war movies. Last weekend, I was watching with my boys Force 10 from Navarone. If you remember that particular motion picture, there was a group of, of, of allied soldiers that were sent to Yugoslavia to blow up a major bridge. And in the process of destroying the bridge, the only way they could do it was by blowing up a major dam that was upstream. And so there was an explosive expert with them. And the explosive expert told two of the fellows where to put the plastic explosives in the dam. And so they did this. And then they blew the explosives. But the dam did not fall. And the other man that was up with the explosive expert on the side of the hill went berserk almost because the dam did not blow up. 
And the explosive expert turned to him and said this. You don't understand. Let nature take its course. Now, what was he referring to? He was referring, referring to the fact that once the explosives had weakened the foundation of the dam, what force would really destroy the dam? It would be the water that was behind it. That is precisely the way that our fallen humanity and the culture around us works to bring us into temptation and to cause us to fall. Now, as the Word of God talks about temptation, John, over in the first epistle to John, kind of clumps together three great categories of temptation. And I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Beginning in verses 15 through 17, and especially before us in verse 16, John gives us three great categories of temptation. Now, I don't want to expand on this this morning, but I want you to understand these are always the three basic categories of temptation. Whether it was in the garden with Adam and Eve, or whether it was Christ when He was tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4, or with us today, the three great categories of temptation never change. Now let me give you a little bit of background about 1 John so you can understand what he's saying in this particular book. John gives the reader or the professing Christian, you need to understand that, this book is written to professing believers. It is written to the church at large. But that doesn't mean that every professing believer is really a believer. And therefore, John gives a number of tests whereby a professing believer can honestly look at himself or herself and determine for themselves if they are really, truly born again. Because of that, all the verbs in 1 John are of the present continuous tense. So when John talks about walking in the light, or when he talks about loving your brothers, or when he talks about keeping Christ's commandments, he is not talking about individual activity or actions. He is talking about habits of life or lifestyle. Did you hear that? He's talking about habits of life or lifestyle, not individual sin. The issue is profession on the one hand, and lifestyle on the other. Now, John begins in verse 15 by giving the professing church a command. Listen to this. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And here it comes. If any man love the world, once again, the idea is a habit of life or lifestyle. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, what is John talking about here when he says, love not the world? And this will come back to what we were talking about in James chapter 1. The word there, as you well know, comes from the Greek word cosmos. And it means the orderly arrangement of things. The modern idea would be simply the establishment, the culture, the elites, 
the people that really set the cultural tone for the entire society. John says we are not to love the world and its culture as a habit of life. He also, in this particular passage, in verse 16 says, for all that is in this cosmos or in this world system that the elites dominate, and then he characterizes them into three great groups, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Now let me give you a definition of lust, if I might, okay? Because I think this is misinterpreted and the term is misused many, many times. Let me give you a definition. Lust, lusts are legitimate desires pursued and exalted to a point of idolatry. Legitimate desires pursued and exalted to a point of idolatry. And therefore, as James 1.13 says, they become what kind of desires? Evil desires. Let me give you an example. We have self-protection built into our humanity. If we get too close to something where we feel we're going to be endangered, endangered physically, we react to that. If we have a relative that is in danger or a friend that is in danger, we react to that. But you see, very, very easily, self-protection can turn into selfishness. We're pretty much, now every decision we make is based on what is good for number one. You see, here you had a legitimate desire being turned into an evil desire. Sex is another example of this. Sex within marriage is a wonderful act. But what happens when that is changed to fornication or adultery? It becomes a lust and therefore an evil desire. A legitimate desire, that is a, a desire that is part of our humanity, then becomes an evil desire. That's the idea of lust. Now, John in this passage before us gives us three great categories concerning temptation. And, the and they are in verse 16. For all that is in this world system, and he begins, the lust of the flesh. I'm sorry, the lust of the eyes. Oh, no, I'm sorry, the, the lust of the flesh. I was correct the first time. Now, what does that mean? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. The lust of the... Let me give you a different word for that, if I might, that will help you. Substitute the word selfishness. Okay? That's a good 20th century term for what John is talking about. The lust of the flesh. Selfishness. The self-centered life. Every decision that I make is based upon what is best for me. Whether it's in my relational life with other people, whether it's in how I handle my finances, whether it's how I handle my obligations, the basic rule of thumb that, that is responsible for everything that I do is the issue, what is best for me? Now, folks, you need to understand that this dominates American culture today. We live in a period of what I would call virile individualism. America has changed a great deal from our founding era. You see, our founding fathers really loved personal freedom. But you see, personal freedom was balanced by what was called public responsibility or political obligation. 
That is, for every freedom I had, I also had an obligation to the community in which I find myself living. And that came to us through the Reformation. But today, you see, that whole aspect is gone. We no longer carry with us any affinity or any obligation for anybody around us socially within our culture. Let me give you some examples. The greatest example of selfishness today in America, obviously, is the whole abortion movement. Because the bottom line of the abortion movement is simply this. What is best for who? For the mother. Every other decision is dependent upon that particular decision. And so as a result of this, the unborn child no longer has any rights. Another, exa another example would be what we see going on in the area of art in America today. The National Endowment for the Arts basically sponsors artists all over this country. And as you know, some of the artists really paint and draw some pretty obscene things. And so there's been a move in Congress to limit the National Endowment of the Arts as it comes to funding these particular projects. Now, you see, the issue is never personal. It's not personal freedom. Nobody has said these people cannot paint these particular paintings. But all Congress is saying is basically this. Public money, which is given by taxpayers, of which many of them do not agree with that kind of art, should not go to fund those projects. Once again, virile individualism. And what has been the result? People today are seen as objects. They are devalued. They not only are devalued, but even in our own lifestyle, we have the inability to build lasting relationships anymore. You know, very few people in our culture now, if they're in between that group of 30 and 50, really have a group of lifelong friends that they acquired when they were in high school. Why? Because once again, selfishness and self-centeredness has dominated their lives. Folks, I honestly believe one of the reasons we've seen the proliferation of counseling, both within and outside of the church, is because there has been a total breakdown of relations, beginning in the family, following through in the church, and also in the culture at large. And the point simply is, the culture at large is dominating the church. And so where do people go when they want help? They don't turn to their family. They don't turn to close relationships in the church. Why? They don't have any. So what do they do? They end up paying somebody $75 an hour to listen to their problems. And I'm not blaming the counseling. I'm trying to show you what the real problem is. The real problem is there's a been a total breakdown of relationships within our culture. And the reason is, is because we are dominated by selfism and meism and selfishness. The lust of the flesh. Look at category number two. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Let me give you another good term for that. The term is materialism. The term is materialism. I don't have to tell you today, we live in a consumer mentality. Let me give you some examples. In 1966, the entering freshman class in college, of that entering freshman class, 11.6% declared business as their major. In 1986, it was 24.1%. In 
the largest major at the university level. And the problem simply is for most people that are entering the business world, they're entering it for the wrong reason. They're not entering it to be able to produce a product to serve their culture. They're in it for one reason. And what is it? Material gain. I don't have to tell you in the church. We live in the age of the Christian consumer who can ever do it bigger, who can ever do it louder, who can ever entertain the most. That's where people are going to go. And the sad thing about that is, is that the leadership in the church feeds that very same attitude. And they don't even understand what's going on about them. Another aspect of materialism that we find in our culture today or a result of it has been there's no delayed gratification anymore. Nobody in our culture any longer knows how to put off something until they have the money to buy it later. We live in a plastic economy where we satisfy our material needs at the moment. Young people, listen to me. We live today probably in one of the most tenuous economic periods of American history. I'm not trying to scare you. The SNL scandal, which is now finally being totally uncovered in this country, is a $500 billion ripoff. It's going to cost every one of you in this room through tax dollars $2,000 to right that particular problem. It is the greatest scandal in American history. The loss of the SNLs makes the Great Depression seem like a blip on the economic horizon. And I was reading in the papers today that many of the banks are close behind. Why? Because they are living on the edge and they do not believe in delayed gratification. They do not believe in putting things off. In fact, they entice people in just, just the opposite lifestyle to live up to their hill. And what have people done? One of the, one of the worst things that's happened is the new credit arrangement, which, which allows people to run a MasterCard on their home equity. And what have people done? They've totally eaten up their entire equity, and now they have nothing except greater payments. And what happens if the whole thing collapses? They have nothing even to fall back on in terms of investment. Another fallout of materialism, I believe, right here on this campus. Great inflation. You know, too many of you young people believe that when you come to the master's college, you're purchasing a grade. That is not true. What you are purchasing is an opportunity to receive an education. And the reason we take this other view is because we believe in this culture today that everything is for sale. Look at the third one. And the pride of life. Let me give you a modern term for that. Worldly security. Pride and confidence in what we possess. I won't ask you to turn to it now, but if you want to see a difference in attitude, you turn to 1 Samuel 17, verse 45, and you see who David put his confidence in when he was going up against Goliath. He didn't put it in his sword. He didn't put it in his shield. He didn't put it in the armies of Israel. He put it in God's hands. And many of you today are basing everything on pride and self-confidence of what you or your parents possess. And you know what the problem with this is? Culturally, it has produced a society that lives for health and wealth. 
And secondly, you know what that attitude produces? It produces overconfidence. And overconfidence leads to laziness. And laziness leads to slowfulness. I want you to bear with me as I read an article as it relates to this. This is not by a Christian. It's by Ben Stein, who is a lawyer, an economist, and a writer, and even an actor. The title of this article is The Fable of the Lazy Teenager. One day last fall, I ran out of file folders and went to the local drugstore to buy more. I put a handful of folders on the counter and asked a clerk in his teens, how much do they cost? I don't know, he answered solemnly. I guess a buck each. A dollar apiece, I said. That can't be right. The clerk shrugged. Another clerk, an older Asian woman, told me the price was 12 cents apiece. I returned to the counter where a teenage girl was now at the cash register. I counted the folders. 23 at 12 cents each, I said. That's $2.76 before tax. You did that in your head? She asked in amazement. How can you do that? It's magic, I said. Really, she asked. No modestly, edu- no, modestly educated adult can fail to be upset by such experiences. While our children seem better natured than ever, they are so ignorant and so ignorant of their ignorance that they terrify me. In a class of 60 juniors and seniors at a private college like the Master's College, where I recently taught, not one student could consistently write a short paper without misspellings. Not one. But this is just a tiny sliver of the problem. The ability to perform even the simplest computations is only a memory among many students I see. And their knowledge of world history or geography is zilch. Moreover, there is a chilling complacency about all this ignorance. The attitude was summed up by a friend's bright, lazy 16-year-old son who who explained why he preferred not to go to UCLA. Quote, I don't want to have to compete with Asians, he said. They work hard and know everything. In fact, this young man will have to compete with Asians whether he wants to or not. He cannot live forever on the financial and material and human capital accumulated by his parents and grandparents. At some point soon, his intellectual laziness will seriously affect his way of life. It will also affect the safety, security, and prosperity of the rest of us. A modern industrial state cannot function with a slothful, ignorant labor force. Planes will crash on carrier decks, computers will jam, cars will break down. To drive this message home to such young Americans, I have a humble suggestion. A movie or TV series dramatizing just how difficult it was for this country to get where it is and how easily it could be all lost. I offer the following scenario. The story opens. Our hero, Kevin Henley, 1990, a 17-year-old high school senior, is sulking in his room. His parents insist he study for his European history test. He wants to go shopping for headphones for his portable CD player. The book he is forced to read, The Wealth of Nations, puts him to sleep. Kevin dreams it's 1835, and he is his own great-great-great-grandfather at 17, a peasant in County Kerry, Ireland. He lives in a sod hut and sleeps next to a hog. He is already hungry and must scrounge for food. His greatest wish is to learn to read and write so he can get a job as a clerk. With steady wages, he could be able to feed himself and help his family, but Henley's poverty allows no leisure for such luxuries as going to school. Without education and money, he is powerless. His only hope lies in his children. If they are educated, they will have a better life. Our fable fast-forwards, and Kevin Henley, 1990, is now his own great-grandfather, Kevin Henley of 1928. He, too, is 17 years of age, and he works in a steel mill in Pittsburgh. His father immigrated from Ireland and helped build the New York City subway. 
Kevin Henley in 1928 is far better off than either his father or his grandfather. He can read and write, which means he can follow the instructions for operating an open hearth furnace. His wages are incomparably better than anything his ancestors had in Ireland. Even so, Kevin Henley in 1928 believes real hope lies in the future generations and knows that education is his key. He had to go to work before he could finish high school. His son will finish so that he won't have to work in a factory. Next Kevin Henley, 1990 dreams, he's Kevin Henley of 1945, his own grandfather, fighting on Iwo Jima against the most tenacious foe of the Japanese army. He is always hot, always hungry, always scared. One night in the foxhole, he tells his buddy why he's there. So my son and his son can live in peace and security. When I get back, I'll work hard and send my boy to college so he can live by the brains instead of by his back. Then Kevin, 1990, is his own father, Kevin Henley, 1966, who studies all the time. This is one of the baby boomers now. Studies all the time so he can go into, get into college and law school. He lives in a tract house in a new development. He has never seen anything but peace and plenty. He, tell, he tells his girlfriend that when he has a son, he won't make him study all the time, as his father made him. At that point, Kevin Henley, 1990, wakes up. He is relieved to be away from Ireland and Iwo, Iwo Jima and, in the steel, and the steel mill. He goes back to sleep. When he dreams again, he is his own son, Kevin Henley, 2020. He lives in a virtual stockade. There is gunfire all day and all night. His whole generation forgot why there, why there was even law. So there is none. People pay no attention to politics and government officers, no serve, offers no service to the working class. Kevin, 2020's father, who is, of, of course, Kevin, 1990 himself, works as a janitor in a factory owned by the Japanese. Kevin, 2020, is a porter in a hotel for wealthy Europeans and Asians. Public education stops at the sixth grade. There is no tax base to pay for decent schools. Americans have long since stopped demanding good education for their children. An elite cadre of Americans who have educated themselves hold highly paid jobs working for the European and Asians who dominate American life. The rest are either drones for foreign investors who consider Americans inherently stupid and lazy, fit only for manual labor, or criminals who supply drugs to the, to the numbered workers, to the numb workers. The last person Kevin 1990 sees in his dream is his own grandson, Kevin 2050. He lives in a slum like those found in Rio de Janeiro of 1990. And by the way, I've seen that, and it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. There is no heat, no plumbing, no privacy. Kevin 2050 has no useful skills. Machines built in Japan and Taiwan do all the complex work, and there is little menial work to be done. Without education, without discipline, he cannot command even a subsistence wage. He lives by rifling through trash piles. In a word, he lives much as Kevin Henley of 1835 did in Ireland. The Kevin Henley of 2050 gets a break. He's befriended by a visiting Japanese anthropologist studying the decline of America. The man explains to Kevin that when a man has no money, education can supply the human capital necessary to start acquiring financial capital. Hard work, education, saving, and discipline can do anything. This is how we rose from the ashes after you defeated us in a war about 100 years ago. America beat Japan in a war? asked Kevin in 2050. He is astounded. It seems as impossible as Brazil defeating the United States in 1990. Kevin 2050 vows that if he ever has children, he'll make sure that they work and study and learn and discipline themselves. To be able to make a living by one's mind instead of by stealing, he says. That would be a miracle. When Kevin 1990 wakes up next to him is his copy of The Wealth of Nations. He opens it at random and reads, quote, a man without the proper use of the intellectual facilities of a man is, if possible, more contemptible than even a coward and seems to be mutilated and deformed in a still more essential part of the character of human nation, nature. Kevin's father walks in. All right, son, he says. Let's go look at that stereo stuff. Sorry, Pop, Kevin 1990 says. I have to study.
Tremendous article. You see the point? You see, if you are living based on worldly security, that somebody else is going to do it for you, that is a subtle temptation. And what he's talking about here is the practical side of it, let alone the spiritual implications. Selfishness, materialism, and worldly security. Listen to me, young people. That is where you are going to face the greatest temptations of your life. It's not going to be in your room with some demon hovering over your bed. You hear me? The issue is the subtleness of Satan and his use of the culture that is around you. Let me raise three issues with you in closing. I'm not going to get done. Three issues as it relates to what John is talking about here. Remember what I said a moment ago? John is talking about habits of life and lifestyle. I'm going to make a very serious statement now and I want you to hear me. Everybody in this room is a professing Christian. But you better hear me clearly because this is what John is saying. If selfishness and materialism and worldly security dominate your life, that it is your habitual lifestyle, the question you really need to ask yourself this morning, young person, is this. Am I really, truly born again? You see, we live in an era of decisional Christianity. Somebody walks forward and signs a card. And anytime anybody wants to figure out if they're really saved or not, rather than looking at their lives, where do they look? They look at the fact that they signed a card. The Bible doesn't teach that, you know. Remember the parable back in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37? Our Lord has some real strong words to say about this whole issue. What does He say in Matthew 12? He says, if the tree is good, the tree will what? Bear what kind of fruit? Will bear good fruit. Go one more chapter over. Matthew 13, the parable of the soils. What does good soil always produce? It always produces growth. It always produces fruit. Now listen to me. The great thing about that particular parable is Christ says that it's produced at different levels. So the issue here is not super spirituality or not super Christianity. The result is simply this. If you're really, truly born again, your habit of life will be such that you're moving more and more towards Christ-likeness. Another passage that nobody uses in relationship to this, and I want you to turn to it, is John. Turn to John chapter 3. The most famous passage in the Bible when it comes to conversion. But I want you to see something about this passage as it relates to this whole issue of lifestyle. Look at John chapter 3. And you just follow along as I read and I'll make some comments. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through Him might be saved. Now, unfortunately, that's where most people stop in this line of thought. But the line of thought does not stop there. Follow closely as I read on. He that believeth on Him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The issue goes on in verse 19. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world. Who is the light? How do we know He's the light? John tells us 
back in chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. Look what it says. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because what? Here it is again. Their deeds were evil. Their lifestyle was evil. Now watch this. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Oh, I thought, I thought it had to do with our belief system. I didn't know works was even involved in this. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Now watch this in verse 21. But he that... Oh, here's that nasty little word again. Doeth. He that does or doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. What is John saying? If you are truly born again, what kind of deeds are you going to do as a habit of life? You're going to be deeds that you will do, that you'll be unafraid to put into the light itself. Wow. Pretty powerful. Folks, listen to me. That is the greatest issue of the text in 1 John. Well, hear me on this. I don't want anybody going around in this room and unsaving people. That's not our job. And one of the tendencies that college kids have is to pretty much judge other college or other collegians. That's not the issue. How do I know that's not the issue? Because back in Matthew, the Lord also gives us the parable of the wheat and the tares. And what does He say? Remember when the tares were sown with the wheat? What happened? The advice was, don't tear the tares out with the wheat. Let it all grow up. And who will do the separating? God will do the separating at the judgment. So young people, listen. It's not our job to unsave people, but hear me on this. One of the greatest acts of compassion that you can do, either for a relative, a loved one, a friend, if you really see someone that you honestly believe is living a lifestyle that totally offends your commitment to Christ, you need not judgmentally, but in love to go to that person and confront them on this primary issue of their salvation. Because John is very, very clear. If the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life dominate a person's life, the issue for them is are they really, truly born again? Well, I'm going to take three more minutes. I cannot leave you without giving you some hope. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with this subtleness? How do we deal with this culture that's coming in on us all the time? Let me give you three, let me give you three ways to have victory over temptation. Go to Romans chapter 6, my favorite chapter in all the Word of God. Romans chapter 6. Here in this particular passage, we are identified with Christ's burial, death, burial, and resurrection. That is, when we became a Christian, we identified with Christ in those activities. So, how do we have victory over temptation? It begins with a spirit-controlled will. A spirit-controlled will. Verse 5. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Because of our identification with Christ's death and resurrection, sin, listen to this, sin is now powerless over you. 
And just as in His resurrected body, Christ lives unto God. Death has no mastery over Him. And look what it says in verse 11. Here it is for us. Likewise, reckon or count us, ourselves, ye also yourselves, to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, as a Christian, we have been identified with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And because of that, Paul can give us the command when he tells us that we can reckon ourselves dead indeed unto sin. Do we still have the flesh? Do we still have our humanity? Absolutely. Look what he says in verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. Be the king of you, if you will. That you should, here's the word again, that you should obey it in its lust. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness, as lethal weapons of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive, here it is, from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. The issue is this. Because of our identification with Christ, do we still have our humanity? Absolutely. But because of a spirit-controlled will, there is not a one of us in this room that has to yield to the temptation of sin. The spirit-controlled will. 1 Timothy chapter 6, real quick. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Secondly, second way to have daily victory over temptation. Possess a God-controlled attitude. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Now, young people, listen to me. If you can ever get a hold of this first verse, verse 6, it will revolutionize your life. It will revolutionize the way everything impacts you in this culture. Listen to what Paul says. But godliness, starts with godliness, with what? With contentment is great gain. What does this entire culture try to make us be? Contented or discontented? Discontented. Now, why can we be content? Look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be what? If God gives us the basis for, basics for life, our response should be what? Our response should be not discontentment, but contentment. But they that will be rich, notice it doesn't say they that are rich, but they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts. There it is again. Which drown men in destruction and perdition, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, here's the issue of the focus. Look at verse 11. Rather than going after that, look what Paul says. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. They're powerful. The pressure of materialism is powerful. The pressure of selfishness is powerful. The pressure of worldly security is powerful. Do you try to stand there and deal with it? What does Paul say? But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness and godliness, and faith, and love, patience, and meekness. And he goes on to say, and fight the good fight of faith. It's a real battle every day. A God-controlled attitude produces an attitude of contentment. And lastly, Philippians 4. Philippians chapter 4, Christ as our source of power. Christ as our source of power. 
We begin with a spirit-controlled will. We have a God-controlled attitude. And thirdly, Christ as our source of power. Look at chapter 4 and verse 10. You know, I never really understood. There's a, there's a verse in here that I loved my whole life and never understood it until about a year ago. Verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, of which you were also mindful, but ye lacked opportunity. This church was sensitive to Paul's needs. Not that I speak... Here it is again. Not that I res- speak in respect of want. Here's a great lesson, young people. For I have learned in whatever state I am and thus to be what? Content. I know how to be abased. I know how to live at the lowest levels. And I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry. Both to abound and to suffer. How can I do this? How can I maintain an even keel in this culture? Here it comes. You know, I always thought this verse had to do with evangelism or other parts of the Christian life. Watch verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, Christ is concerned about the doggy dog daily life that we're involved in. And He says, with Him as the source of power, we don't have to give in to the culture around us that desires to dominate our lives. Well, folks, that's it. For the most part, temptation is going to come to you in these three areas. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But thanks be to God, we can have a spirit-controlled will, a God-controlled attitude, and Christ is our source of power. Let's bow our heads.